right, here we go. Three, two. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of On the Range Podcast with Warhog Tactical and Kelly Defense. I am Mark Kelly, and as always, I am joined by my co-host and friend, Rick Hogg. How's it going, buddy? Man, it's going great, Mark. Just want to thank the viewers, listeners for giving us your most precious commodity, your time to tune in for a fantastic guest today. So we've mm-hmm. got we've got Navy SEAL Marty Strong, future author of Be Visionary book coming out here uh, beginning of next year. I'm not going to steal any more thunder. I'm going to pass it right to Marty. Marty, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. How you doing, guys? Good, man. Oh, we're doing great, buddy. Thanks for being here today. We really appreciate it. We talked in uh, pre-production. We seem to have a lot of Navy guys on the show, uh, maybe because half of the books that are coming out today are written by Navy SEALs. I'm I, I just guessing. It sure as heck seems that way. And yeah, you I mean, had a great story. You had a great well, story you, about... Actually, it was your theory that like sometime, <laughs> sometime in basic SEAL training, there's, there's a course on creative writing and then... right. Yeah. I, I corrected you and said that you got your publicity agent about two days after Hell Week, and then they stuck with you for the rest of your career. Yeah, I, I don't know why we, we all end up writing. That's um, I don't remember anybody wanting to write when we were mm-hmm. when we were all you know getting cold and dirty together. Yeah, yeah. Marty, were you a? Uh, did you journal at all while you were in? No, I cartooned. No. Uh-huh. If, that, if that's such a thing, I I wrote caricatures and did like little comic strips. The guys in my platoon. I was a I was a an enlisted guy for ten years. I was an E seven when I went to officers candidate school, and then mm-hmm. finished out the next ten years as an officer. And and I don't no, I didn't have any premonition that I'd be writing later on in life, other than you know the stuff you have to write when you're in the military reports and stuff, but nothing else. Yeah, yeah. That that was one of my if you want to say um, my regrets of the military. One was not taking mm-hmm. enough pictures, and two was just not journaling just to capture hey look back 20 years ago what was i doing today i have no idea right yeah it'd be kind of cool just to look back and know the picture the pictures thing see journaling would have been perfect for me because there wasn't we had instamatic cameras we had polaroids and and Mm -hmm. we usually didn't carry them in the field we didn't carry them anywhere where you'd where you'd want to get a cool picture right we didn't have the camera when we needed the cool picture and (laughs) what i ended up doing when facebook became a big thing. We ended up having communities. I started hit, hooking up with some of the old guys that I knew from different SEAL teams, and we started swapping what few pictures we had. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of that exchange, I probably have a couple hundred now, but I, I probably had about 10 Yeah. before that. Oh, yeah. 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 And it, it was so readily available now that you wish you'd have had those that technology because you're you're absolutely right. The insta instamatic ones, the Polaroids, and then you always had those um, ones that you would just kind of click, and it was basically a cardboard box around a roll of film, and then you take those back, and eventually you get those developed if they survived. But uh, right. yeah, what a great what a great blessing those guys have I, now, and good. I'd for be them. a little concerned as an RSO, you know, doing selfies where you're doing room clearance and trying to juggle the <laughs> juggle the iPhone and the <laughs> primary and secondary weapon and all that. So yeah. Maybe it's a good yeah. thing we didn't have them back then. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Some of the things that might have captured be like, "Oh, good lord!" So, Marty, what was your uh, your time frame in the Navy? When when did you serve? Ninety five. Excuse me, seventy five to ninety five. Okay, so you're right on the tail end of Vietnam, right? And then uh, went about eleven years with contingency ops and things like that. And then I mm-hmm. was a, a platoon commander in Operation Just Cause. Did 
36 combat missions down there okay with my guys from seal team four and then later after i got out i did some work with the government that actually was a lot hairier and got shot at a lot more so <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what, what made when you you're with i was gonna say it's a little bit different when you're with a bunch of professionals you're fully supported then later on you know you're just kind of hanging out there and it's a lot a lot different yeah you work with some of these agencies and sometimes some of the uh different cats you get you know not the same so makes it interesting yeah. yeah yeah you ever notice in the marvel comic books there's like no air support there's no qrf <laughs> there's no, it's just you're kind of out there yeah yep oh yeah <laughs> what made you do the swap uh from enlisted officer yeah i guess a part of it was pay the okay. uh I, I made e7 really young i made e7 when i was 25 mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i had a uh young son and i had another one on the way and i was looking at okay do i get out and try to be able to raise his family or do i you know how can i can't advance any faster as an enlisted person mm -hmm. and then i started looking at the how much officers made compared to enlisted guys and and so i decided and, and that's a big thing in the seal teams back in those days there were anywhere from 10 to 15 enlisted seals converting to officer and that's a tradition that went all the way back to the tail end of vietnam they didn't have a warrant program for most of Vietnam. Then they had a warrant program, didn't have an LDO program. So, um, and then they brought back the warrant program in uh, the nineties. So the idea of spending a couple million dollars on a seal and then developing them, you know, that's just to get to the point where you are one, then developing, developing them and giving more and more experiences and then making them an officer. It really shut down the leadership learning curve. You know, you had the judgment, so that was that was a tradition in that particular unit. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it seemed to work, and then in I think it was the the late '80s they cut down the number of people that of enlisted guys that could become officers in the SEAL teams down to about three a year. But there was there was mm -hmm. a heyday there where you'd look around and, and half of the officers in any SEAL team were ex-enlisted. Mm -hmm. Now from that point and you after your um your government contracting stuff you immediately went into business correct yes yeah so i i got out and went into managing money and eventually became a portfolio manager with united bank of switzerland and uh i was doing some some oddball things in those days on the side you know some some light consulting public speaking then 9 11 happened towards the very end of my seven and a half year career so I tried to figure out a way to get back in. I got 80% disability, so nobody was nobody was taking me. And so I slowly started transitioning over to non-DOD oriented, you know, I guess, uh, co contribution. Initially, things like I was the um, the terrorism threat advisor for the Olympics in Athens in 2004. Just, just things like that where I was on the periphery and then I eventually started working for the government and got into bad places and uh being shot at by even worse people so <laughs> so that that went on for a while and then i transitioned out of that and got into a large corporation and then started my whole business leadership career now is that something you were always looking to do was to get into uh into corporate america or was that kind of just happened or what was that no. piece no i'm uh 
I am a, a nonlinear life story. I've been all over the place. I, I didn't, nobody knew anything about the SEALs when I was 17 years old. They were highly classified back in those days. That was before we had all, all those writing classes and everything. <laughs> and, uh, and I was actually at radar air traffic control school and I was supposed to go to a ship in the Mediterranean. Instead, they gave me orders to buds. So I showed up the next morning and with the advice of my dad, who was a radar operator from the Korean war, he said, just go find a chief and, and he'll, he'll sort it all out. You obviously aren't supposed to be wherever, whatever this is. He didn't know what a seal was either. It wasn't until later I told him all oh, their frogmen. And he said, Oh, we had those guys on our, on our destroyer in Korea. Mm-hmm. But up to that point, he, he, he didn't know what, what it was. He thought it was just a mistake. And then a master chief talked me in to staying. And, uh, and so that, that took off, you know, the way it took off. And then I was going to go to law school, took the LSAT as I was getting out of the, of the Navy and a Navy captain seal was swinging by the, uh, the seal team and, and heard that I was making that decision. And he said, you know, he came in there and he grabbed me, he goes, let's go. We're going to lunch. And he talked me out of it and talked me into financial services, which is what he was doing. He'd been out for about six months. So there you go. So I'd spent all that time preparing for the, for the, <laughs> LSAT getting ready and boom off in a different direction. So yeah, my life tends to be very well planned until it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I think that's a lot of people, right? Just kind of, yeah. Hey, you're going down the road and you think you've got a plan set up and then somebody injects with, eh, might not be the best idea or maybe try this or maybe that sparks that interest. And it's like run down that road and kind of see where it goes. I'm not, I'm not afraid to jump through a, a window of opportunity. You know, I write about it and be visionary a lot, but it's actually my lifestyle. If, I mean, I've had opportunities that didn't look like they were going to be very uh, palatable or, or safe or whatever. But most of the time I, I hear the logic, I see the logic, and then I make the decision and I change. Even if, it's, if I've committed to the plan to a point where I think I'm locked in because mm-hmm. now i got new information, new assumptions. And so I say, all right, this – some, and and the, the more you do that, the more you're confident that you can deal with whatever you have to do to to make the switch, the pivot. The more it feels instinctive. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it's something that's innate. You don't you're not born with it, but with repetition, you feel comfortable, and you start jumping through those windows of opportunity more and more. How much of that, Marty? Do you think is what's put in front of you? Is it equally as much as being able to recognize a good idea or a good opportunity as it is just being willing to, you know, put the effort into it. I mean, that seems like several of those pivots were not even close to the same thing that you thought you were going to do. No. And they were random. I mean, a a mistake in orders is random. Somebody swinging by for lunch is random. I mean, they're very, very random. And I think, I think learning to see opportunity is a teachable skill. I don't think it's something Mm -hmm. that has anything to do with, with education, you don't have to have a college degree to see it. I think there's a long, long list in history of of people that have invented things and have created whole new ways of of doing business, where new products, new just new concepts. They had nothing. It had nothing to do with their education, and in many in many cases, they they were just you know self made men that were blue collar workers or something. So it's not it's not something about your SAT scores. So there's no limiting factor there. I think. The, the issue really is, is that if you haven't been exposed to what opportunity looks like, you start to get 
a feeling that it's all high risk and there's a whole list of things, prerequisites that you have to check off and have kind of like the, you know, rich kids get good high school grades, kids with good high school grades, get into college, kids get into good colleges, get good jobs. You know, that, that, that whole, which is mm -hmm. a societal kind of baggage that's been, been spewed out there for 40, 50 years. And I think recently in the last three years or so, everybody's kind of come to the cold reality that doesn't really work that way. Like 30% of everybody that goes to law school becomes a lawyer. I mean, it's because they get there and they realize this, this sucks. I don't want to be a lawyer. This job mm -hmm. sucks. And, and when you start as a lawyer, you're not making that much money. You're basically a clerk. So, you know, it's just that, it's just that, um, that quiet truth, but it, even though it's a quiet truth, people buy in to that, that definition of, of, I'll call it success or, or that definition of what it takes to be successful. And they think that jumping through that window of opportunity requires you to be a successful person with a track record being successful. Jumping through a window of opportunity is the exact opposite of being successful. That's mm -hmm. risk taking. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. You don't have, you don't have, there's no formula. There's no analytics program. You can run everything through and say, yes, I'm going to marry that woman instead of that woman. You know, you jump through the window because something tells you, I think that would be good for me. And I think I could do well in this direction. So yeah, it's, it's very teachable. So on that one there, Marty, so there's, to me, there's a couple uh, different avenues, right? And, and totally agree with you. So you're looking at opportunity from the individual level, i.e. like your inventor, Hey, am I going to go out and try to take this item to market or the other side? Hey, you just have an opportunity thrown at you. <clears throat> and then just looking at those, when you're kind of teaching people, do you have kind of like some groundwork that you lay, i.e., for example, hey, when you're making these decisions, uh, are you looking at financially, hey, how much are you going to make? Hey, with the family, is it going to move, be separated, things like that? Are you laying different things out for people to think about or what's kind of your thought process when you're teaching people about opportunities? Right. So I'm a big fan of the Hippocratic Oath and I, I apply it to everything. You know, first do no harm. Mm -hmm. So if you have a family then you're not jumping through the window of opportunity. The whole gang is jumping through the mm -hmm. window of opportunity. So you have to think about the consequences and the impact on your family. If that's the situation, a lot of times jumping through the window of opportunity though. And I just gave a, a presentation at the seal heritage center three nights ago, actually Thursday of last week for people transitioning, guys transitioning out of the seal teams. And one of the things I tried to hammer home with those guys is that, you can actually have a day job and your side gig is, is preparing for the other opportunity. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do either, or you don't have to quit the job and then jump in and try to be you know, the lead singer in a boy band. Not that anybody said they, <laughs> nobody raised their hand and said, how do you become a lead singer? <laughs> but you know, you don't have to make those kinds, those uh, super high risk leaps of faith just on a whim. Mm -hmm. Now there's also paralysis by analysis. So if you, if you start thinking it and overthinking it and overthinking it and you never start, then you never start to learn whether there's really an opportunity there for you or not. So I always, with transition situations, I'll, I'll have somebody, you know, say, raise a hand. How many people know how long it takes, how many years it takes to become an engineer? How many years does it take to become a software, um, to write software? How many years does it take to do this, to take, to do that? And then I'll point to somebody and say, well, how old are you? Well, I'm 40 or I'm 39. All right. And you're retiring when in six months. So how long is it going to take for you to become an engineer? And then there's dead silence.
because as soon as I say it, everybody in the room realizes what I said, that the only limitation on what you can do next is you. Mm -hmm. Because everyone in that room, if they wanted to become an engineer, could probably go to college and become an engineer. Everybody in that room could do two years of, uh, to learn how to write software. Everybody in that room could become an SEO optimizing specialist, you know, in a year, 18 months. All these things are out there. And in this country, there are so many opportunities that it's, it's odd that people don't see all those opportunities for what they are. The playing field is wide open. So I always advise if you've got other obligations like a family, et cetera, keep your day job, start sketching out the next thing you want to do, sketch out the mm -hmm. thing you think you want to do, research it, find out are there certifications, education, prerequisites. If you want to start a restaurant for two years while you have your regular job, go out and, and make friends with a restaurant owner. Ask if you can, can work in different positions in the restaurant for free, mm -hmm. basically apprentice, apprentice yourself out, yep. learn the business from the ground up. Maybe you realize this sucks. I don't want to be a restaurant owner, and which mm -hmm. is a good, that's a good outcome, right? Sure. It's just all you had to do is spend a little time and you're smarter about restaurants in general. So what the hell? Yeah. Uh, but maybe you actually said, I, I can do this. And so you start to prepare the groundwork, the financial groundwork, et cetera, the transition from your day job to the next thing. And pretty much every avocation or vocation you would target as that other opportunity would require some kind of preparatory work, some kind of study. But if you find yourself studying it too much and too long, it's just a, it's just a delaying tactic. Mm -hmm. Now, Marty, when you're talking to these guys, one thing I've found, especially talking to transitioning service members, a lot of guys don't know their why or their purpose or what they want to do next. It seems like they're very tied to, Hey, I'm a seal. I'm a chief, you, you know, whatever their, their rank position uh, organization they belong to. Are you seeing that when you're out and about talking to these guys? I, I've seen it with people that work for me. I've had 06s and 05s and 04s from all the services work for me. I, I've had some really bizarre situations where they come in and they're asking where their office is and you know who who their assistant is. And, and I'm like, what <laughs> is this like a, an episode of Madman? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know. <laughs> And then I'll, and I'll try to let them down uh, like, I guess to some extent, but it, part of this, I, and I call my a little presentation was called reality check. It's kind of a scared straight approach to transitioning truth. Mm -hmm. I'll look at them and say, okay, you're in a big business. You know, we're a billion dollar a year company. Um, tell me, tell me what you know about EBITDA or IRR or ROI or, and they'll stare at me and I go, that's why you don't have an office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These are the basic vernacular, the basic language of business to understand business. It's how you target things. It's like, it's like, uh, um, ISR, you know, mm -hmm. it, do you know what BI is? No, it's business intelligence. It's like ISR. See, so there's, there's some things that convey and are compatible, but for a different purpose. And the purpose mm -hmm. is to improve those other things I mentioned. So yeah. the other thing is, you know, if, uh, if I run into somebody who, and I, I want to, I don't want to say they think they're. They're too good or whatever. There's a lot of ego involved, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. end up, you end up getting out of the service unless you, you know, I only did four years. If, if you were an elite unit, you might still have this, but the longer they've been in, the more rank they, they achieved. And I've had this with, with senior E9 enlisted guys too. There is a whole positional authority that a persona that they've had for the last couple of years of their time in service 
they're at the top. They're an apex, you know, apex performer. And, you know, people are asking their opinion and people are following their opinion. They got lots of influence. It's kind of like when I went from being a chief to an ensign and nobody wanted to know what the hell I had to say. <laughs> well, that's what's like transitioning out. You walk into an organization and there'll be patriotic people there. Oh, thank you for your service and everything. Here's some cookies and everything. And then they don't, they don't invite you to the marketing meeting because you don't know anything about marketing. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I, I talk about a 12 to 18 month period where you have to do, like I mentioned before, in parallel with your day job, start yeah. to explore everything that you want to do. I show like the, the top, uh, the future projections of job categories in the United States from the, the fastest growing jobs to the least, the least fast growing jobs, just to give them an idea. Cause you don't want to jump out and grab the thing that's in decline. Mm-hmm. And this is your passion. You just want to do it. You don't care. So there are things you can do. There's research you can do. Unfortunately, and somebody brought this up to me a couple of weeks ago. It said, if the, if the military spent as much time preparing guys for war and battle, if they apply that same level of dedication and intensity to the last 12 to 18 months of somebody getting out to prepare them for becoming civilians, you'd have a whole change in the, in the suicide rates, the success rates, the divorce rates of, of veterans that are getting out, whether they're retiring or, or getting out prior to a retirement period. Because what we're basically doing, which happened with me, you go to a, you go to a, a you know, two week or a one week little course and they teach you how to, mm-hmm. you know, how to wear a suit and tie a tie and, and what a resume looks like and how to convert. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a 240, uh, 240 Bravo expert and convert that into I know how to do advertising or something. All the crap where you, you're exchanging yep. what you did in the military for something that's similar, but it's not similar. And mm-hmm. it may get you the interview, but then you fall apart in the interview because you really didn't know that other term that they, they taught you in that class, that's a term that's got a massive amount of information behind it and a massive amount of knowledge behind it. And you, you're, you're completely flat footed deer in the headlights when somebody actually asks you about that part of your resume. So mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't, and they're all doing their best they can to try to help, but what they really need to do is be preparing them way in advance of that moment to figure out what they want to do. What, yeah. what What's going to make them happy? What do they want to pursue? And then, start them down a path and have resources available to them to learn everything about all these different kinds of jobs. And to the point where they feel comfortable, they know the certifications, educational requirements, et cetera. And the other thing is where you want to live. If, mm-hmm. if you want to live in a certain place, you got to look at look, what are the opportunities there? You can't say you want to, you know, you want to work on, uh, you know, the SpaceX program, but you want to live in Minnesota, you know, it, it doesn't work. So you got to yeah. mesh those two also. See, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think within the special operations community, I think they could be doing a lot better job because again, you've got smaller guys. It's a a more niche organization where if there was a little more emphasis from the top pushing down, hey, just plug guys a little bit of info. Hey, maybe at that two-year mark, at that 18-month mark, so they can start setting themselves up for success when it comes time to do that true transition. Because like you're saying, that week-long class, it's a joke. My whole takeaway from my transition process was Uncle Sugar was like, give me my stuff back. Okay, there's your 214. Have a good life and best of luck to you. And that was really about it. it there was no 
you know, they, they talk about, you know, you go to the boost to business class. All right, let me go sit in there and see what that's all about. Well, just go to SBA and get a loan. Well, you're not helping me with anything, you know, that that's a no brainer. So I just think, especially within special operations, they could start really getting <laughs> some decent transition things going for guys just to start setting those marks and setting them up for better success. Well, I understand they have a, a fairly new program six months prior that they set up with corporations intern programs. But mm-hmm. again, you got to know what you want to be. You got to know what you, yeah. you, you got to know that doesn't help me if I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And if the, the corporations that have signed up for it don't cover the whole 360 degree range of possibilities mm-hmm. from also from very, very small, you know, the top of the, the you know, the, the pyramid, very, very, very large corporations at the top to very small companies and self, um, uh, what do you call it? The small businesses, which is the vast majority of, of jobs in America. Mm-hmm. It also sets me up for failure thinking that maybe I'll get a job with these guys. Well, yeah. okay. I, I'm more likely to get a job with the people that aren't offering interns because they, they don't use interns. They're out there busting their butt every day. Mm-hmm. So opportunity when you're looking at jobs is where the work is. Opportunity isn't where you think or, or you perceive the money is. Sure. It's, it's it, these, these are realities that just don't get conveyed. And, and you're right. You get confused. You come out and you're like, what the heck was that all about? I'll tell you, I pursued my end state because my back was all screwed up from a parachute accident. So I was behind a desk for the last eight or nine months as an operations officer of a SEAL team. So I had some time to think about it, not because it was a program or anything like that, but just, I just had some time. And I started off on a path and I did everything that I'm, I'm telling you. I just learned, prepared, then took the LSAT. I paid some money for a company that packages up your LSAT and your and whatever other education you have into a kind of like a pitch book to send out to law mm-hmm. schools. You tell them what law schools you want to go to. I had all that done, which is pretty good, all things considered. And then I didn't do any of it. I went a different direction. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's. And that's okay too. You could prepare for that 12 or 18 months. And then somebody walks in and says, Hey, I've got a bourbon distillery. I just stood up in Tennessee. I really need guys I can count on. I can count on guys that used to have my six. Do you want to come help us out? And you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh man, I just, I was just preparing to be an accountant at BDO. But you know, if you're, (laughs) but if you're instant, (laughs) shout out for BDO. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And I don't even get paid for that. I don't even get paid for that. I know. (laughs) So, so, but you know, that those kinds of things happen right at the, the 11th hour, mm-hmm. right? When you're, you're just like missions, right? You get Intel you get all the assumptions yep. and you're, you're loading up the aircraft and, and somebody walks up and goes, you know, the weather's different or there's not five, there's 50. They, somebody screwed up the zero, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Oh yeah. Not a big difference going up against five or 50. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You know. <laughs> right, so that's the same way life works. And the, the problem I think with guys getting on the military is it's the same problem you have with guys getting, you know, kids getting out of high school or kids getting out of college. It's that same daunting. What am I going to do? What do I want to do? Mm-hmm. But they're, they're trying to solve it all in one big chunk. If you can, if you can just look at your life as 65 to 75 years of living and, you know, at least 50 of that years working, 
Mm-hmm. You you can do all. I've been in business for 27 years, and I was a SEAL for 20 years. So it's not an either or. You can be anything you want, and you can get tired of being something, even if you're successful at it. And go, you know what? I think I want to do something else. Um, Randy Hedrick, the guy that invented TRX, a friend of mine, he uh, SEAL, and he he took TRX to where he took it, and he went, you know, I want to do something different. And so he completely shifted gears and started doing something different. And that's okay. You do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Now, after your, your portfolio work over at the Swiss, Swiss bank or whatever, the, it, it mentions that you did a lot of startup work and, and what was your piece on that? Were you mostly showing folks how to do it or were you actually invested in the companies? No, like some was, of the programs that you're doing now, is that how you helped I was these more startups the, get going? I was more the advisor and architect rather than the, the money was already there. A lot of cases, the businesses were acquired and they were in, <laughs> they're in some disarray in a few cases, distressed. Think of, think of it like you go to buy a house, you know, you're going to flip a house it seems like you're getting a good deal. And then you find out like on HGTV, there's, you know, there's dead bodies in the attic or something. And, and it's, <laughs> and then they have the, then they have the list of how much money it's going to cost to get rid of the dead bodies right. and, your, and your margins shrinking and like, Oh man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes when you buy a lot of times when you buy businesses and you buy them on the cheap, you end up with that same situation, much more complex than dead bodies it's much more subtle. So what I ended up doing is I ended up being called in to run around inside of a corporation that was making lots of acquisitions, all kinds of different companies too, by the way. And it wasn't because I knew something about that particular company, what they did for a living, like how to bake the, bake the bread the way they did it. It was more because I was, uh, it's like a football coach. So I coached youth football. And if you're, if you're in the military and you're an NCO or if you were a coach for any period of time, you can watch a team in action and you, in, you just immediately see the things that need to be fixed. It's mm-hmm. an, it's, it's like a superpower, right? You just stand there and you go, uh, I get what's going on here. There's one kid who thinks he's the hero and the, and the coach is actually catering to that and to the detriment of everybody else's development. So that the team isn't any stronger because we're all, we're, you know, it's one, one single point of, of failure, which is this, the superhero, whether he's a running back or a quarterback, whatever. You start seeing these things. Well, it's the same thing with companies. You can go in there and you can see that they're really strong on production and quality, but they have zero marketing and sales. They can't, you know, nobody knows they have the best widget in the world. Other places, they have a really good grasp or a real good hook into the local market, maybe even more than the local market. Everybody's, you know, interested in buying what they have, but they, they, they stink at actually making the product. They have a hard time making enough of the product. They have a hard time sourcing the materials that they need to make the product. Mm. <laughs> so when they do make the product, it's more expensive than they can sell it for. Yeah. And again, you don't have to have an MBA necessarily to, um, to see all those things. You just come in kind of like, you know, the old TV show uh, Columbo and you ask a lot of kind of stupid open-ended questions. You sit back and you listen and you look at facial tells and see whether they're telling you the truth or not. Nine times out of 10, you can tell in two seconds that they know exactly how bad they are at that thing you just asked about. <laughs> so it's, it's not a mystery. It's not like you come in yeah. and go, you, you yeah. say something, they go, what? I had no idea. Yeah. You know, they know. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so later on it was, um, I, I start, I started one company from scratch and, uh, and that was, a, that was a real, 
that was a real learning experience. It was in healthcare. I had another company I bought, had one employee. Now it's got 180 employees in seven states, healthcare company. And that was more about scaling a company that wasn't really a company. So it, it, it was taking this, this person and their idea and trying to blow it out into a game plan, which is a lot like a mission plan. You just lay out a phased sequence of events mm-hmm. and you figure out what kind of people you need. You hire those people and you start out really small and you do the baby steps method and you, you start to build momentum. And if you're not, you investigate why. And then you figure out what that was. And then you start to gain momentum. And then you start to gain momentum until you stop gaining momentum. And then you investigate why. And that's why they mm-hmm. call it scaling. At certain at certain levels of scaling, you, you smack into a resistance. You know, you get traction, then you hit resistance. You get traction, then you hit resistance. And and that's every time it's a it's a new experience. It's a new set of circumstances. It's not what's it's not necessarily what some other company's gone through. You can't pick up a book and read about it. Oh yeah, that's what happens when you hit 10 million or 20 million or whatever. So yeah, that's that's more of my experience related to small business. And then Marty, what was kind of the driving factor with writing the book? Was that just trying to get or capture all your ideas to put something out there? Or was that something you'd been thinking about for a while? So so I've written nine novels. And they're under ML Strong, and all the proceeds go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. And I, I thought I was going to write one book because it was like a bucket list, so I wrote a novel. And it wasn't about – the first one wasn't about the SEALs. It was a, it's a time travel book called The Time Warrior Sagas. And yet I would try to en- encapsulate all the, the warrior ethos and you know people in harm's way. It's about guys going back into time, ancient periods where – before the, the invention of gunpowder. So you're talking about, you know, Gauls and Romans and, and British tribes and things like that. And they, they go back in time to those periods because everything in the future is basically so dull that the number one cause of death is suicide, even though the, the, um, the life expectancy is like 160 years old. So if you don't give life purpose, if there's no risk, you know, that flight or, or fight or flight response actually helps keep human beings alive. And so I, I saw articles about that. And I go, yeah, I believe that. So I, I wrote that book. And then after two or three of those books, there's four in the series. I started writing the SEAL books. There's five of those. And then, I, you know, kind of like Forrest Gump, you know, running down the road, I stopped and I thought, okay, why not write a, a book about business, business leadership? Mm-hmm. So that was probably the end of 2019. So I wrote a book called Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and Business, which came out January of this year, which was kind of like the, the box of all my good ideas. It was everything about leadership, mostly in crisis. So for businesses, it's an internal change that's very dramatic or dynamic or an external event that causes you to change that you didn't control or anticipate and and or success like scaling because you know five people can do the job for a while and then suddenly adding one more person isn't enough you've got to add a system and two more specialists mm-hmm. so it's you don't just can't you know, incrementally keep adding accounts at some point you need somebody who's got a cpa you know that kind of thing so there's a lot of stress involved in that kind of leadership and it has a lot to do with mentoring and coaching and training people and again, that comes from my military background. I don't, I don't think there's hardly, there's hardly any of that in the commercial world, by the way. 
Mm-hmm. Nobody's really, they, they call it training, but if you look at the training, the titles of, of the training that's out there, most of it's either HR training about how to behave or it's technical training about how to, how to use the GWIS 5000 without losing your fingers, you know? So <laughs> nobody's actually sitting you down and trying to teach you how to think better, how, how to build up your ability to make good judgments. Uh, nobody's teaching you how to be visionary and strategic. Nobody's teaching you how to become a, a better leader, which for me is somebody that is either trained and or capable of stepping in when all the systems and processes fail and fall apart. Managers maintain those things. Managers, when something goes wrong, a manager goes to the book, pulls out the instructions and starts reading down, you know, what to do. But when the book doesn't matter because whatever's happened is, is so catastrophic or so outside the norm, that's when a leader has to step in to kind of re-envision or reinvent mm-hmm. and, and restate the art of the possible for the organization. So in a military context, it could be everything's gone to crap and you, you know, your primary extract is gone and you're facing a five or six day walk through the swamps or the desert or through mountains and you're already exhausted after a five day recon op. So how do you, you know, you got to rethink this. You got to reshape what's going on. Because what you, what you thought was going to happen hasn't happened, and, and the resources you thought you had at your um, at your disposal aren't there, both both physically and the system that supported the mission. So that doesn't happen. So I, I talk a lot about in that book, mentoring and coaching beyond the training, and you know train train your replacement, which again doesn't happen in the commercial world. I, I try to explain it to people, no. you know. I said the reason why they do it in the military is the rank structure. So if you've got, you know, a major and he gets killed, then a captain has to step up and keep doing the job. If the captain gets killed, you know, I go through that whole thing mm-hmm. down to, you know, to a corporal and with commander's intent, eventually maybe even the private's got to make sure we take the hill because taking that hill operationally is, is going to allow somebody to move on another axis to win the battle. Mm-hmm. And everybody understands that. But in the in the commercial world, training my replacement, no way. And you go into a boardroom or you go into a room. I don't want to make anybody else the smartest person in the room or equal to me as the smartest person in the room. I want to be the smartest person in the room. So there's yeah. a lot of behavioral resistance to a lot of the advice I gave in Be Nimble. Be Visionary is about looking at the future and the horizon and, and coming up with, it's that whole thing we were talking about earlier, about being able to see the windows of opportunity and also the threats. We're all pretty good. We're hardwired to see threats, but both of those things, and, you know, 24, 36 months out, instead of worrying just about how you, how you did last week on your numbers. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with your optimization that you were talking about in your, this upcoming book, correct? Being able to identify those things. Well, it's, it's a conflict and, so yeah, the subtitle strategic leadership in the age of optimization. So the age of optimization is this last 20 years and it's accelerated in the last five or six where, where technology has enabled companies and the military to optimize hyper collection of minute details about what has happened in the past and then bundle it and throw it on dashboards and package it. And give everybody a, a warm and fuzzy about the future. Now think about that, about, about the future. It's all related to the past, but it's about the future. And I've found that 
companies that operate that way aren't really thinking about the future at all. Nobody's thinking about the future. If they focus on optimization as the be all end, be all end all indication of future results, then they have nobody that's actually sitting there thinking the big thoughts and wondering what's going to happen to us because, you know, it's, I can't remember, you know, there's a, there's an old saying in the military that, you know, the other guy has a, has a vote in the battle too, right? The other, mm -hmm. the other, your opponent has a plan too. And so if you're only thinking that your plan, all you're focusing on is if our plan works the way we planned it out, the way we had it at the PowerPoint, we're going to win. And so you're going through your little steps and somebody comes in and does something to you and you go, wait a minute, you're messing up my plan. I'm going to keep. <laughs> so that's how it's like that in business, but you know, a hundred thousand times more dynamic. Everybody is moving, shaking, change and the universe is in a constant state of change. Markets and industries are in a constant state of change. Technology is, is in a constant state of change, which means that almost every day something is being invented or conceived or innovated that's going to change your business. It's, it's either going to change it for the good if you, you see it and know how to leverage it, or it's going to destroy what you're doing if you ignore it and keep your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whole idea of keeping your head on a swivel in business, the only way you can keep your head on a swivel in business, well, it's not by looking at dashboards to figure out how many widgets you sold two weeks ago yeah. or what your KPIs are when, you know. You've got to be constantly looking out at the at the perimeter, zooming out, zooming in, yep. asking everybody, intel, intelligence collection in every possible aspect, having intellectual humility that you don't care where it's coming from because it's going to be that weird source that gives you the insight that causes you to have the epiphany and say, oh, crap, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully you got enough time to, to prepare for it. So are you seeing a lot of companies that – pretty much are, are very compartmentalized where they're not coming together, actually sharing information, just kind of running, running business, really not getting any gains because of that whole, Hey, I don't want to share information or knowledge is power kind of concept. Not so much that what I see uh, in, in companies, what I see is kind of like uh, we used to lock, lock seals out of escape trunks from submarines. Mm-hmm shaped like a beer can. You can get about three guys in a, in a rolled rubber boat in there. And the saying was, you know, if, if everybody's thinking the same way and nobody wants to change their mind, they're, they're smelling their own farts because that's what happens when you're in that little, <laughs> when you're in that little escape trunk and you're waiting for the water to finally flood so that you can yeah. get the hell out of there. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, what companies do is they tend to smell their own farts. They're basically breathing in internal air. They're breathing in internal ideas, insights, education, traditions, which aren't, you yeah. know, they, they educate you on traditions. And if it's about a culture and the culture is a sound culture, then that's a good thing. But if the tradition is about as the, here's the football place from 1962, the founder came up with how to solve every problem, study these and memorize them. So what I find is that most companies, and most employees in the companies want to learn the rules of the company. They want to learn the formulas and the football plays of the company. They want to comply. They want to be obedient. They want to show that they've memorized and they understand all these things. What I'm really talking about is they're not looking outside the skin of the building. Mm -hmm. It's, I know it sounds crazy, but it's like they're in a car with the, with no windows or the windows are all blacked out and they're hauling ass down the road and they're convincing each other that they're <laughs> they're on track and on schedule to get to Wally World, and and they yeah, have no idea where right. they are. Yeah, we see a lot of that with um, with the training side of the house, 
just listening to new or other ways of doing things, even if it's not that much different, they just don't want to hear it. Yeah. How do you like that? When somebody changes something about shooting? Yeah. I mean, I went to John Shaw's when the team started going there in mass in the eighties. And that was a, a point where everybody stood there. I saw Celise, you know, position on a range, you know, everything was like, you're all triangled, triangled out and everything. And that's the way we did it. It was basically a safety driven RSO, you know, but mm-hmm. the tradition was the Marine Corps and the army. Cause if you're going to train 60 guys and you got to control them, you want everybody to have the same stance. So you can tell instantly if somebody's doing something stupid, you know, your peripheral vision is all you need in that situation. Right. So John Shaw, who was a three guns world champion, he was talking to us and he flips the gun upside down, uses his pinky finger and starts punching holes in the, in the, it wasn't a bullseye. It was a, it was a, a dot target. And he's just kind of talking to us. He goes, pow, pow, pow. He talks to us. He goes, pow, pow, pow. And he goes, so what do you think I'm doing there? And then he explained that what was consistent was the trigger squeeze and that the, uh, the firing pin hit the primer at the precise instant he had the sight picture he needed. He didn't mm-hmm. care whether the gun was upside down or not. He didn't care what finger he was using. <laughs> he didn't care. And then that was his intro to breaking us free of static shooting positions because he knew enough about us and, and the Army version of us that the actual scenario where we're going to employ these skills is running a gun and shooting and climbing. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not standing on a line, you know, like, like, you know, the British military in the 1700s or something, you know, it, <laughs> but it's as stupid as that sounds. Yeah. I mean, at that point I'd had 11 years, I think in the, in the teams, we're all going, there's guys that were fighting against it and there's other guys are going, well, maybe you could do it. You're a three gun world champion. <laughs> I can't take my little finger and do that. But then he showed us how to do it. And he, and he did the same thing with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. None of us had shot the shotgun hardly at all, you know, it was kind of a security weapon and all of a sudden he shows us how to shoot it. And everybody after that just wanted to just go everywhere with, 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 uh, <laughs> a shotgun. With, yeah. With, with, uh, I just forgot the name of it. You know, the, the solid shot, not the, not the, Oh, not, a slug. Oh, a slug. A slug. It was slug. Yeah. <laughs> we go into a kill house, you know, and it was so cool to punch because we double tap everything to punch two slug holes in the, in the, in the forehead of the, of the, uh, the crazy lady with the, the pistol. <laughs> And, <laughs> and we're like, this is so much cooler than, than using the pistol. I mean, he changed our whole world. We changed everything about shooting. And we had to go to a civilian non-military guy to mm-hmm. break us, break us free of all that old crustiness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a good idea is a good idea. You know, it doesn't matter who has and he, it. And he was smart. He had a good way of demonstrating and that if he had just said it, yeah, we would, uh, we would have. You know, seals all think they're pretty smart. So we've all been coming up with a thousand <laughs> reasons why it's not going to work. But right. um, yeah, so that 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 and and I know grips have changed. There's lots of different ways people are doing primary, secondaries, and reloads, and that evolves over time. And then you get in there. I will say one thing though. You know the the repetition of something that makes you proficient. You know the old rule about whatever you've practiced well is what you're going to end up doing. Mm-hmm. When, when the stakes are, are, are high and, and you're in that moment, it's a, it's old martial arts rule, you know, one punch and one block and one kick practiced a thousand times is better than a thousand different kinds of kicks and punches and blocks practiced two or three times. Mm-hmm. So if somebody has got the, the ability to do primary and secondary 
drills cleanly, safely, and accurately, and it's only a tenth of a second difference than the new way. I've always felt it's, it's kind of it, it's kind of important that you realize why you're doing it. Are you just teaching it because it's the it's the new improved tide, or or is it because there's a real significant change in performance? And so you get into those battles too, where marginally optimizing a particular procedure becomes the 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 only thing instead of the fact that this person's got ten thousand rounds out of a out of a sig and you know blindfold beaten up and without five days of sleep they could still hit what they have to hit but now this new technique is going to make them actually a worse shooter in those situations for a long until they get the ten thousand rounds out mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> Well, so are you see are, are you seeing Marty? Just one last quick question for you. Are you seeing yeah. um as far as like on the business side? So when someone does do that inject, more bucking back or more receptive? Oh, bucking back. Because that's the way we've always done it, and that's the way we're gonna keep doing it, and that's produced our numbers, and we don't and care. not not only that, I'm in a compliant, I'm in a state of compliance and obedience. When they gave me, when I was onboarded in this company, they didn't say, figure it out, try new things, experiment, you know, surprise <laughs> yeah, us, <right>. surprise <laughs> yeah. us. They didn't say that. They, no. they told us how to act, how to, how to perform, what to do, where to go, when to go to the bathroom, when to take lunch. Yeah. So there, there's a, I'm on the board of a, of a nonprofit called Best Robotics. It's been around for 30 years. They do robotics competitions, two day competitions with kids all around the country about 20 times a year. One of the things we've pulled from there is the concept of divergent thinking or divergent thought. It's rule breaking. So these kids are going through and building these robots and engineers from a lot of major technology firms watch them. And then they're astounded at how well they do. And then they come to the realization that they aren't trained software writers or they aren't trained engineers. So how are they doing it? How could they possibly be doing it? Well, the reason they're doing it and the reason why those engineers that are looking at that aren't having the same, you know, dashes of creativity and innovation on a regular basis is because when you go through any college program, I don't care what the subject is, even liberal arts, what's being pounded into your head is the tradition of thought in that particular area. This is the way you write a sentence. This is the way you build a building or a bridge. This is the way you build a car, you know, I mean, and then you come out of four years of that. Then you go into a company doing the same thing. Welcome to, you know, XYZ Corporation. This is the way we do it here. This is the way we've always done it here. This is the way you're going to do it here. I don't think most employees and leaders in companies have a chance with all that kind of pressure and that, that repeat, you know, drumbeat of indoctrination and, and, and focus on obedience and compliance. Now, I'm not talking about burn burn the building down kind of divergent thinking. I'm talking about when you get in a room and you're going to talk about some new way of doing something, you got engineers and you bring in some artists. And the artists are in there to help you with the design and the shape of the thing. Well, the engineers want to make it square and they want to make it <coughs> excuse me, easy to build. Mm-hmm. But the artist looking at the aesthetic of it. Now that's that's using divergent thinking of two different kinds of professionals and trying to mush them together like a Reese's peanut butter cup. And you can get some incredible results as long as whoever is sponsoring that makes sure that 
all sides get their input in and they don't get overwhelmed by the demand of obedience from one specialty mm -hmm. over the other. <clears throat> well, I know there's always a, um, a question that Rick likes to ask our, our mentors like yourself uh, to uh, veterans getting out. But I wanted to ask one more thing about the, um, the book. Where can people go to uh, get it? Or is there a pre-sale? Can they get it right now? Yeah. So B Nimble's out. It's been out all year. Be Visionary yeah. is in pre-sale on Amazon, but you can get That's access thought, yeah. to all my articles, my books and everything by going to martystrongbnimble.com. And that has links to the Amazon point to sale for my novels and my business books. Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes. Um, so everybody can click on that. And I know Rick always likes to ask this question for the, the veterans that are getting out of uh, service. Yeah. So really Marty, it's, if you had one piece of advice to give a transitioning service member, what would that be? Relax. Look at how much time you have left in your life and don't make, make it so hard on yourself. Pick some, pick something you think you'd like to do and just go for it for a while. And then, pivot or transition to something else if it doesn't work out all right awesome i like well it, you know we got the army navy coming up so we will definitely reach out to you see if we're going to do anything army navy game is a big deal here at on the range podcast <laughs> i can tell you that we took a we took a, a walloping last year uh we're looking for a little bit of redemption but man navy looks good again this year so we'll let you know how that goes and, and I think, especially I, if we win <laughs> And I think it was like 1924 or something when they came up with the term walloping when Navy beat Army back then. So, yeah, <laughs> probably so. Yeah, I think that's specifically associated with with Army losing, with the amazing uh, uh, beating I mean, that they took. I that mean, day. where yeah. else? Where else can you take a walloping if you think about it? There's, nobody ever says, yeah. you know, don't go over there. You'll take a walloping. Nobody says that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're going to have to take it until this next game, the results, but uh, it's a big deal. So, again, Marty, thank you. You're a great guest and I, great information. And um, can't wait to to uh, hear about the your next venture and next book. But really appreciate you being here, pal. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. Right. Absolutely, Marty. Thank, thank you, buddy. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys.